If you have your Bibles with you, uh, let's open up to Micah chapter 1. Um, uh, my glasses, which are already undersized, fell off of my oversized head this morning, so I have a big chip on there. So, like, this side of the Bible is like, woo, and this side is little. So, I've jacked the font size up on my iPad to like 20, um, so hopefully we can do without glasses um, until we uh, read from Scripture. I want to start this morning by asking you, what is the hardest thing you have ever had to teach somebody? Maybe you're a school teacher. Maybe that's the sevens in the multiplication uh, table or the nines. Uh, if you're a higher math teacher, maybe that's something in algebra. Um, if, you're, if you're involved in football, maybe that's teaching blocking schemes, or maybe it's ex- trying to explain American football uh, to somebody who, who it's foreign to. Maybe it's trying to teach somebody to make pie like you made or like grandma made. You might think for me it would be for, as a pastor, as a teacher of, of God's Word, that it might be something like trying to explain the Trinity uh, to somebody. That's tough, but that's not the toughest thing I've ever had uh, to teach. For those of you who don't know, my undergraduate degree is in mathematics and education, so um, I, I taught math in de- various levels for the first several years out of college, and I also coached basketball. And when I was first out of college, I went out to the Cincinnati area, and it was a small Christian school, and they were just starting up, and they were just starting their basketball program. So we had kids all the way from here uh, to here. We had kids with varying about, uh, amounts of basketball uh, ability all the way from here to here. Um, and so it was, it was fun to teach in that type of a setting. But there was this one young man, and he was about my height. He was, he was, he was eighth grade, ninth grade, so he, he was big enough to be able to do things correctly, but he had never been taught. And the hardest thing that I have ever had to do in my life was to teach this young man how to shoot a foul shot. Because the first time that he came up and you gave him the ball, he looked like he was swatting hornets or something. His feet went one way, his hands crossed, uh, he was barely looking at the the basket, and if the line is right here, he would jump about three foot over the foul line, which is a no-no for those of you who don't know. Um, So what we had to do is we had to take and we had to get rid of all of his bad habits before we could start shooting a free throw the correct way. You get your feet planted right, and you, get your, you, get, you make a basket, or a, 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 a nice cushion, a nice basket for the ball, and you keep your elbow underneath the ball, uh, and you follow through, and you use the momentum, the, the energy in your body to, to release the ball without jumping across the gym. But before we could get to the right way of doing things, we had to get rid of all the bad habits that he had accumulated. Church, that is how I feel about this study in Micah. We have to set aside understandings of judgment and justice and hope and love and anger that we've adopted from culture and grab hold of what God's design and definition is. 
Uh, remember last week we had this quote from Eugene Peterson. He said, left to ourselves, we turn God into an object, something that we can deal with, something that we can use for our benefit, whether that thing is a feeling or an idea or an image. Prophets scorn all such stuff. They train us to respond to God's presence and voice. And that is what my hope is for us today, is that we're able to respond to God's voice, to his word, to walk away with a better understanding of God's love for us so that we can better understand why God deals with us the way he, in the manner that he does. So as we get into this, let's set a few guidelines, some, some guiding principles or guiding questions. These are good for us, regardless of whether we're listening to a sermon here, listening to a sermon online, whether we're sitting down at our, our table, at our desk, in our comfy chair at home and opening scripture to study for ourselves. These are some good questions to ask. And there's five of them. The first one is why. Why do I need to understand what's going on in this section of Scripture? The second one is, what was the problem for them? And the them is the original audience. Whether they were hearing Micah talk or whether it's something that they read from Paul, what was the, what was the problem for them and what was the message to them? Based off of that problem, what was the prophet? What was the, the, the apostle? What was the writer? What was Jesus trying to say to them? And then we flip that to what is the problem for us? Because it cannot mean something for us that it did not mean to them. It, it's, it's not possible, right? We can't say, well, it meant this to the Israelites, but we're going to take that and we're going to construe it in a different way so it means something different for us. That cannot happen. And then what is the message for us? Because while the message doesn't change, the application might. Right? They didn't have iPhones. They didn't have the level of technology that we did in 700 B.C. Right? Sin is still sin, but sin takes on different forms. Right? Satan had an arsenal, one arsenal when he was ta- attacking David and, and, and Joseph and Jacob and Esau. And he, while he still has a full arsenal, it looks a little bit different now. So what is the message to us? And then a few guiding statements that we talked about last week, that the message of the text must be the message of our sermon, or the message of the text must be the message that you walk away with after you have spent some time in God's Word, right? We can't walk away and say, well, it said this, but I really wish it would have said this. A pastor can't get up in front of you and say, here's God's Word, but... It has to be the message of the text is the message of the sermon or the study, and the message of the text must be the message of our lives. So, with that in mind, let's go to Micah chapter 1, and let's read the first seven verses uh, of this prophetic book, this minor prophet, minor not because of importance, but because of its length. And let's read the opening verses of this prophet again. Micah chapter 1 and verse 1. The title of today's message is, How Can a Good God Be an Angry God? The word of the Lord came to Micah the Morishite. What he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Listen, all you peoples. 
pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him, and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire, and I will destroy all her idols. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used again for a prostitute. We looked last week at the settings of this of, of this uh, writing, of, of when Micah ministered. And we, we saw that, that last week that how division after division had led Israel to be where it is right now. We talked briefly about how there was King Saul, King David, King Solomon, a united kingdom, but then Rehoboam appeared, and he decided to take bad counsel and to raise the taxes even higher, and it split the kingdom. And for the last couple of centuries now, in this time, the division has just led to more and more and more destruction on a personal level for the people of God, on family levels for the people of God, and on a national level for the people of God. During Micah's ministry, that, that northern kingdom, those ten tribes that, that went with Jeroboam, they would be carted off into captivity by the Assyrians. Shortly after, less than a century after Micah's ministry, right, the, the, the southern kingdom would be taken off by the Babylonians. The, the northern kingdom never returned again, annihilated from the face of the earth. The, sub, the, the southern kingdom would come back, and that remnant that we read about all throughout Old and New Testament scriptures. And here we see that because of, a, because of division, again and again and again, that division leads to destruction. The most glaring consequence of, of sin is that it creates division between God and humans. And the sin of idolatry, which Micah talks about a lot, is one of peculiar nuances. But in all of those nuances, it's nuances, it causes division. It can take, idolatry can take the form of outright rebellion against God, where we turn our back on God and focus only on what's ahead, but it could be seen as this balance where we want a little bit of God, but we want a little bit of other stuff too. And we'll see this again and again in Micah, that that is the idolatry that Judah, that Israel was dealing with. But, we're, and we're going to talk about this idea of balance in coming weeks because we sometimes use, hey, I just want, I need to balance. I need to balance work and family. I need to balance my schedule for the benefit. And sometimes, as we'll see later in Micah, that that idea of balance we elevate to the point of it being an idol, and, but we'll get to that in a few weeks. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into idolatry, the idolatry of Israel and Judah, 
so that we can get real and honest about our own idolatry. Now, it's interesting, and we said this last week, that, that the, the three kings give us some context, and you can go back and you can see what's happening in history based on the, the kings and the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. It gives us some context. But something maybe even more significant is the fact that none of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel are mentioned at all. They had slipped so far into idolatry that, that, that God is already having preparing Assyria to come and to cart them off. It says here that, that he's talking to both Samaria and Jerusalem. He is talking to both. Uh, Israel, right, Samaria area is going to be carted off soon. So here we have Judah, who better pay attention or the same fate is going to befall them. There are three points that I want us to take away from this first chapter. We're only going to talk about one of them today, and we'll cover the next two next week. And the first thing that we're going to, to look at is how Micah describes the judgment for idolatry. Again, this is prophecy and this is poetry, uh, so this, is, this can be hard stuff for us to understand. But if we're going to comprehend Micah's message to them and to us, we need to first think carefully about their idolatry. And here's what makes this book challenging. How many of you, or when is the last time somebody has come up to you and said, what do you want first, the good news or the bad news? Hey, how many of you choose the good news first? I mean, choose the bad news first. Why, why? Why do the majority of us want the bad news? Because we immediately want that followed up with the good news. God, if you're going to chastise me, give me some good, something good next. Your boss, if you've got to tell me something I'm doing poorly, would you please follow that up with something I'm good at and something you appreciate? We like bad news followed by good news. Sour taste, sweet taste. We like that. Unfortunately, that's not the way Micah is written. We have to wait a long time, really, before anything good comes. So we get bad news, or Israel gets bad news, bad news, bad news. And then finally, if we hold on, the good news comes. But I'll tell you this, it's not coming today. It's not coming next week in our study. But if we're patient, we see where hope and salvation comes from. We don't like this. We, 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 we don't like this. We, we, we like bad news tempered with good news, but unfortunately, that's not how Micah is. In this, this week and next, we see some tough love because sometimes deliverance only comes through judgment. Sometimes restoration only comes after rebuke. Sometimes resurrection only comes after suffering. And that's why it's hard for us to, to receive this type of message. Last week and this week in the reading, we saw that God is angry. And he's, as we see in the first few verses, he's coming out of his holy temple. Now, that could mean two things. That could mean that he's coming out of his earthly temple where he was to meet with the Israelites, with his people, and it's okay if we interpret it that way, but I think, I believe that it's talking about he is coming. He is leaving heaven to come 
and to, to bring judgment. And how is he going to do that? He is coming to tread upon the high places of the earth. Now, he's not talking about the mountains. He's not talking about the highest point in a city or a country or a continent. High places were pagan sanctuaries for idolatrous worship. It wasn't just the highest point in in Wood County or Washington County. It was a pagan sanctuary for worship to a fake God. And God warns that all of the people's carved images uh, will be smashed. They'll be beaten to pieces. That all of her wages will be burned in fire and that all of her idols would be destroyed. And since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used for a prostitute again. This idea of high places should scream at us because it's key to understanding what's going on in Israel and Judah. You see, the people of God were told by God who to worship, how to worship, and where to worship. They were to worship God and him alone. Go to the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shouldn't have any images that, that, that steal your worship away. They were told who to worship. They were told where to worship. They, they were to go to Jerusalem, where the temple was. They were to make this voyage there to worship in Jerusalem and in the temple where, the, the, where God came and was with his people. Now, later in the New Testament, Jesus has a conversation with a person, and it says, hey, there's a day coming where it's not going to matter where you worship. It's going to matter if you worship on Mount Gerizim or where you worship in Jerusalem or wherever. What's going to matter is that you worship in spirit and truth. But in the Old Testament, God had some very strict rules on who and where and how to worship. So here, these high places evolved because somebody had the good idea, you know what, we spend a whole lot of extra time packing up the animals, packing up the family, and making that week-long journey to Jerusalem to, to worship. We could save a whole lot of time, and we could have more time to worship if we just built something here on our property or in our town. But what happened was then, because they didn't have that journey and that time to focus on who they were going to worship, where they were supposed to worship, that they started adding to their worship this collection of local deities. Hmm, the smiths next door, their garden looked really good, and they have this image um, of of, of a sun hanging in their window, and they worship this, this sun god. Maybe we should worship him as well. So we'll just add a little bit of that to our high places uh, decor. And over time, not only did they change where they were worshiping, they changed who they were worshiping. If people choose to worship God in a way that is different from the way, from the one that he sets out, very soon they will choose to worship a God different than the one God who is real. And that's what has happened to Israel, to Judah. And that is the foundation for idolatry. As simple as we can put, can put it, idolatry is choosing one's will over God's, choosing what is what I want over what God desires. 
things. Choosing what is easier for me over than the statutes or the, the rules that God has given to me. It's giving ultimate allegiance that's due only to God uh, to any other object of affection. It could be wealth, influence, romance, power, control, approval. It could be family or comfort or preference or tradition or understanding or sex or acceptance and so on and so on and so on. It could be anything that we give a higher place than it should, a higher place than we give to God. And notice again in verse 7 that the promises for her wages will be burned by fire because their idolatry was centered on wealth. And not only that, a little bit further, he uses that imagery of a prostitute because their idolatry was on wealth and on sex. You can go all through back history books and see over and over and over how pagan religions centered around those two things, money and sex, and a combination of those things. And God is saying here that it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be burnt by fire. And God's judgment is coming to destroy every one of these idols. And we're going to look at that next week in detail. If you haven't read the rest of of Micah chapter 1, I encourage you to do that. And I encourage you to either have a study Bible open on your desk, uh, on your lap, or go to someplace like Bible Gateway or Bible Hub and pay attention to the word plays, to the the puns that are involved in there. Because what he does is is he systematically takes anything where uh, Israel or Judah had placed their identity, and he says it's going to be destroyed. It, you, you, your, 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 your identity is in your power, you're going to become weak. It's in your wealth, you're going to become poor. It's in who you think you are, I'm going to destroy that reputation. We're going to look at that more next week. And when we look at this, we ask something like, when we read this, we almost naturally ask, is God's judgment too harsh? I mean, don't, don't miss the scale of this judgment. You have mountains melting. You have uh, valleys splitting. This is serious stuff, and it seems harsh, and it is. But Christians, believers, tend to think about judgment as something related to the judgment of the world. God's going to judge the world for its sins, we don't so much like to think that God's judgment is coming on us as well. But if we look at Micah, if you go over and you look at Jesus' words or Paul's words or James's words, judgment, the majority of the time, church, is focused on those professing faith in Jesus Christ. Focusing, er, professing a faith in God. And, but just because we've been blessed to born into a godly family and we do all the right ritual things, we can be lost in idol worship where we have no relationship with God at all. And his judgment is coming to the world, yes, but specifically here in this text and in the New Testament, most of the time it's focused on the people of God. We, we have a difficult time thinking about this. We find God's judgment difficult. We like to think about God's mercy and forgiveness, His grace and His love, but not so much His judgment and His wrath and His anger. But the Bible clearly teaches 
that the same God who loves and gives grace and who forgives is the God of anger and wrath and judgment against idolatry and adulterers. So, it poses us to ask the question that's been on the screen behind me for the entire service. How can a good God be an angry God? If we're not thinking it, I'll bet you a paycheck that somebody in your circle of family or friends is asking that question right now. How can a God that you call good be this angry? So we need to understand this so that we can understand it for ourselves, yes, but maybe more importantly so that we can, we can explain it and we can help others understand it. How can I reconcile the anger of God with the love of God? How can I reconcile judgment with justification? How can I recognize God's fury against his own people with his amazing and immense grace? How is this possible? I want to recommend somebody to you. Her name is Becky Pipert, P-I-P-P-E-R-T, and she has this fantastic book called Hope Has Its Reasons. And Miss Pipert reminds us, uh, she points out that all loving persons are sometimes filled with anger, not despite of their love, but because of their love. All loving persons are sometimes filled with anger, not despite their love, but because of it. And, but, but we have a problem with that because we tend to be influenced by our own responses to situations. Uh, we, we look at our anger and how, it's, how our irritability quickly becomes anger. We look at how our pettiness sometimes becomes anger and how, how we have this unrighteous anger when we fly off the handle. And we think because we act that way that that's how God acts as well in this unrighteous anger. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible responds that there, he teaches that God, the Bible teaches that God responds with a righteous anger. Piper has this quote, and it's a question, and, and it says, think about, think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance? And that phrase, benign tolerance, has, has captivated me over the last couple of weeks. Do we respond with a benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. We are dead against whatever is destroying the one we love. Think about this for a second, church. Suppose you have a loved one who, who, is, who is addicted to drugs and maybe you need to fill in something else other than drugs into that. And you can see that this addiction is leading this person that you care deeply about down the path of destruction. Do you go to them with this benign tolerance and say, you know what, have you thought about what you're doing? Have you thought maybe you need to go a different direction with this? It's, it's, it's probably not a good idea. Your life is already complex uh, enough. It, it's probably not a good idea for you to be doing this. Here's maybe something else that you should try. And when they say, oh, don't worry about it, said, uh, I, I've got it all under control. This isn't, this isn't an addiction. It's just recreational. Is it? I, I, I'm perfectly fine. Trust me. 
And you know that that was nothing but self-denial in what they were trapped in. Do you just sit back with your arms crossed in that benign tolerance again and like, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. I just wanted what was best for you, but if you've got it all under control, you just keep doing what you're doing. You be you. No, we don't do that. No, we, 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 say, we say something more like, do you know what you're doing to yourself? You, you're becoming less and less of who you are because of this path that you are on. And though that might sound harsh and we might try to pose it as lovingly as we can, no, we stand toe-to-toe with that evil that is dragging our loved one down. We don't just fold our arms and say, eh, whatever, it's not that big of a deal. No, we get upset and we don't get angry because we hate that person. We're angry because we cared, because we loved. We could have walked away, but love detests what destroys those we love. Love destroys that which destroys those we love. Real love stands against deception and lie and sins that destroy And love also stands against somebody who wants to hurt our kiddos. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. You would do anything to protect your children. And if somebody comes after your children, you become angry because you love those who are being attacked, those who are put in harm's way. God will judge his people because God stands opposed to things that destroy his people. Why? Because anger is not the opposite of love. This should have been on the screen. Anger is not the opposite of love. Anger flows out of love. Hatred, indifference, those are the opposite of love. Anger is not. Anger, righteous anger towards something that destroys is love. It is tough love. And God is using that type of love to get Israel's attention in Micah. And God has used that type of love to get his people's attention all throughout time. God will judge his people now to remove idols and return them to himself so so that they will not be destroyed by their idols at his final judgment. And when we see God's love this way, when God judges his own people because of their idolatry and what that idolatry will ultimately do to them, then we can see God's angry love for what it is. Deep, deep love. God will stop at nothing to save his children from things that will harm them. But we gotta remember that God is playing the long game. He's not in it just for what's best for us tomorrow, what makes us feel the happiest tomorrow. God is in it for eternity, and he will do whatever he can to redirect his children back to him, even if it hurts them, because he's much more concerned about where you spend eternity than how you feel on the weekend. We must remember that God plays an eternity-long game and that we must remember that outright rebellion and idolatry with more of a subtle twist to it are equally condemning. Um, 
because we, both of them, create division that leads to destruction. Past, one of my favorite pastors and writers is Timothy Keller. And he, he has this quote, the greatest danger, because it is such a subtle temptation which enables us to continue as church members and feel that nothing is wrong, is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with idols in our heart. Think about that for a second. The greatest danger is not that we turn our back completely on God and become non-believers in God. It's not that we become atheists, atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with the idols in our heart. That is the type of idolatry that God's people were engaged in in Micah. They have not actively and def uh, definitively rejected God totally. They have deliberately and consciously added to their worship of God other objects of worship. It was a slow fade because they slowly started to walk away from God's statutes on how they should worship. This is idolatry. And in Micah chapter 1, verse 7, he uses the word prostitution. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Spiritually, this is a sort of idolatry that's idolatrous before God. This is people who says, God, we want to enjoy all the benefits of knowing you. We, 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 want, we love being loved by you, and we love you too. But we also want to be free to worship other things because they make us happy. And when we see a statement like that for what it is, the division of our focus and our worship, we begin to see why God abhors idolatry and why he is so firm on judgment is coming. We begin to grasp why God is so angry over it. Just like my young basketball player could not learn to shoot a free throw properly until all those bad habits were removed, we cannot experience rescue until there is first a removal of the objects of our idolatry. That's what God is promising in Micah chapter 1. And for the people in Micah's day, this judgment was going to be severe. Let's go back to those five questions that we had at the beginning of, of the message together. Why? Why do we need to study something like Micah 1, 1 through 7? Because division leads to destruction. It's a message that we will get over and over and over in this minor prophet. The smallest amount of division is going to lead to disastrous destruction. What was the problem for them? They had wandered away from God's intended plan for them to worship. The who, the where, the why, the how, they had gradually moved away from that. And the message for them is unless you repent, judgment, cosmic judgment, mountain-melting judgment is coming to you. What's the problem for us? Well, let's revisit that Keller quote one more time. The greatest danger is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with the idols in our hearts. And church, 
this is where Scripture steps on our toes. Think about how guilty we are, you are, I am, of this, asking God to coexist. God, I really love you, but I might need this money, so you're okay with me not giving it, not tithing it this week, right? God, I really love you, but I'm going to let the world tell me who I am. God, I I really love you, but I'm going to shack up with my boyfriend, with my girlfriend before we are married. God, I really love you, but this alcohol, this drug, (laughs) it's going to feel so good. God, I really love you and you made me, but I'm going to listen to what the world has to say about my sexual identity. God, I really love you, but an hour on Sunday morning is just about all that I can manage to give you right now. God, I I, I really love you, but I'm going to ignore what you said about how I should treat my spouse. I I really love you, God, but but I'm going to just sort of try my own thing at this kid-raising adventure that we find ourselves on. God, God, I I really love you, but but I'm going to play this balance game. I'm going to give you 50%, and I'm going to take 50%. Here's an hour for you. Here's an hour for me, and we're going to play this. God, I really love you, but God, you are great, but God, thank you for saving me, but... Anytime, church, our actions, our words, even our thoughts add anything to the sentence, God, I love you, we have allowed an idol to coexist in our lives and our worship of our God. According to Micah, this is spiritual adultery. We are guilty of idolatry. So what is the message for us? The message is no different for us than it was for Judah, for Israel, thousands of years ago. Judgment is coming. Well, you can take the Old Testament, you can flip over to the New Testament, and you can see this over and over and over, that judgment is coming for those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ. Let's just pick a couple as we wrap up our time together. Let's just pick a couple that, are, that fit closely with our study of Micah. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, shared these words. For, the, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understand, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in their cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped the Worshipped and served something created instead of the creator. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served something created instead of the creator. 
who is praised forever. Amen. Harsh words coming from the Apostle Paul. Paul was right then, and he sure seems to be right now. The only difference for us is we don't bow down to images resembling mortal man, birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Adam Mabry, in a, in a cool book that I've been listening to, the, the, the Art of Rest, he shares this. The only difference is that we don't stop to admire glittering statues of birds and animals. We stare at mirrors. We lift our hands to honor pagan deities as we raise our arms to take the perfect selfies. We have forgotten the creator and replaced him with the creature. We have made the meaning of life to find ourselves rather than to find God. Paul hits the nail on the head again in another letter that he wrote in Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 3, he, he wrote this. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our, but our citizenship is in heaven. Their end is destruction, their God is their bellies, judgment is coming. But for the believer, we get the good news right after that. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that wasn't good enough, then the next verse, verse 21, promises that He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to him. Church, that last phrase, that's a curious phrase. He will be, a, who, that enables him to subject everything to himself. It goes back to a chapter to, to 2.10 that says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Does this mean that what we do on a Sunday morning is futile? Does this mean that when judgment comes that everybody, regardless of whether they've lived a life of obedience or disobedience, whether they've shunned Jesus or surrendered to him as their Savior, does that mean that everybody gets a free pass and is, is ushered into heaven? No. He is talking here that one day we are going to die and face final judgment. Whether we lived in obedience or in sin and adultery, we are all going to drop to our knees and acknowledge that Jesus is God in the flesh. Every single person who has ever lived, wherever we end up, we are going to know Jesus is our Lord. Now, the choice is yours. You can now surrender to that Savior. You can now figuratively or literally fall to your knees and surrender to him and say, you are Lord. I have messed up my life. I need you to be my Savior. And on that day, when you bend your knee, you're going to be helped up and you're going to walk into eternity in the presence of God. If you decide that Jesus isn't for you, if you decide that, hey, I'm a pretty good king of my own life, I'm just going to stick with this plan, 
and they work for, work for you for a while. But one day, on that same judgment day, you too are going to fall to your knee, and you are then going to realize that Jesus is king of the universe. But on that day for you, that forced kneeling is going to be too late. Because instead of being helped to your feet and ushered into uh, eternity in the presence of God, you will be ushered into the, an eternity void of God, in the, away from the presence of all that is holy and all that is light. This morning, church, is God our sole purpose? Or are we allowed all these other idols to come in and co-opt our worship that should be designated only to God alone? I have two questions for you to deal with this week, to, to think through this week. I encourage you to look at the one sheet this week, to wrestle through these a little bit more, to understand more about Israel's idolatry so that we can understand more about our idolatry. But today, what are the idols that are now coexisting with God in your life? If you don't think you have any, just hit pause a second, back up and think, have I ever said anything have I ever thought anything like, I love you, God, but? The second question is, where are the high places that you run to for worship? Where are the places that you go for refuge? Where are the places that you go for fulfillment? Where are the places to get your identity and your worth and your value? If you are running to a man-made high place, Rather to the very presence of your Savior, you are worshiping a false idol. Father God, thank you for allowing us to be here today. God, please forgive us. Forgive us collectively and individually for the sin of allowing other idols to come in and to, to take residence in our heart in a place that should have been only reserved for you. God, please forgive us for our, for our idolatry. God, this morning you know our hearts. You, need how, you know how we need to respond, whether that is a surrender to you for the first time, to call on you as our Savior, or whether that's a prayer of forgiveness, asking you to, to forgive our wayward ways, our, our idolatry. God, however we need to respond today, please, spur us to do that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We think that idolatry
If you have your Bibles with you, uh, let's open up to Micah chapter 1. Um, uh, my glasses, which are already undersized, fell off of my oversized head this morning, so I have a big chip on there. So, like, this side of the Bible is like, woo, and this side is little. So, I've jacked the font size up on my iPad to, like, 20. Um, so, hopefully, we can do without glasses um, until we uh, read from Scripture. I want to start this morning by asking you, what is the hardest thing you have ever had to teach somebody? Maybe you're a school teacher. Maybe that's the sevens in the multiplication uh, table or the nines. Uh, if you're a higher math teacher, maybe that's something in algebra. Um, if, you're, if you're involved in football, maybe that's teaching blocking schemes, or maybe it's ex- trying to explain American football uh, to somebody who, who it's foreign to. Maybe it's trying to teach somebody to make pie like you made or like grandma made. You might think for me it would be for, as a pastor, as a teacher of, of God's Word, that it might be something like trying to explain the Trinity uh, to somebody. That's tough, but that's not the toughest thing I've ever had uh, to teach. For those of you who don't know, my undergraduate degree is in mathematics and education, so um, I, I taught math in various levels for the first several years out of college, and I also coached basketball. And when I was first out of college, I went out to the Cincinnati area, and it was a small Christian school, and they were just starting up, and they were just starting their basketball program. So we had kids all the way from here uh, to here. We had kids with varying uh, amounts of basketball uh, ability all the way from here to here. Um, And so it it was fun to teach in that type of a setting. But there was just one young man, and he was about my height. He was, he was, he was eighth grade, ninth grade, so he, he was big enough to be able to do things correctly, but he had never been taught. And the hardest thing that I have ever had to do in my life was to teach this young man how to shoot a foul shot. Because the first time that he came up and you gave him the ball, he looked like he was swatting hornets or something. His feet went one way, his hands crossed, uh, he was barely looking at the basket, and if the line is right here, he would jump about three foot over the foul line, which is a no-no for those of you who don't know. Um, So what we had to do is we had to take and we had to get rid of all of his bad habits before we could start shooting a free throw the correct way. You get your feet planted right, and you, get your, you, get, you make a basket, or a, 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 a nice cushion, a nice basket for the ball, and you keep your elbow underneath the ball, uh, and you follow through, and you use the momentum, the, the energy in your body to, to release the ball without jumping across the gym. But before we could get to the right way of doing things, we had to get rid of all the bad habits that he had accumulated. Church, that is how I feel about this study in Micah. We have to set aside understandings of judgment and justice and hope and love and anger that we've adopted from culture and grab hold of what God's design and definition is. 
Uh, remember, last week we had this quote from Eugene Peterson. He said, left to ourselves, we turn God into an object, something that we can deal with, something that we can use for our benefit, whether that thing is a feeling or an idea or an image. Prophets scorn all such stuff. They train us to respond to God's presence and voice. And that is what my hope is for us today is that we're able to respond to God's voice, to his word, to walk away with a better understanding of God's love for us so that we can better understand why God deals with us the way he, in the manner that he does. So as we get into this, let's set a few guidelines, some, some guiding principles or guiding questions. These are good for us, regardless of whether we're listening to a sermon here, listening to a sermon online, whether we're sitting down at our, our table, at our desk, in our comfy chair at home and opening scripture to study for ourselves. These are some good questions to ask. And there's five of them. The first one is why. Why do I need to understand what's going on in this section of Scripture? The second one is, what was the problem for them? And the them is the original audience. Whether they were hearing Micah talk or whether it's something that they read from Paul, what was the, what was the problem for them and what was the message to them? Based off of that problem, what was the prophet? What was the, the, the apostle? What was the writer? What was Jesus trying to say to them? And then we flip that to what is the problem for us? Because it cannot mean something for us that it did not mean to them. It, it's, it's not possible, right? We can't say, well, it meant this to the Israelites, but we're going to take that and we're going to construe it in a different way so it means something different for us. That cannot happen. And then what is the message for us? Because while the message doesn't change, the application might. Right? They didn't have iPhones. They didn't have the level of technology that we did in 700 B.C. Right? Sin is still sin, but sin takes on different forms. Right? Satan had an ars one arsenal when he was attacking David and, and, and Joseph and Jacob and Esau. And he, while he still has a full arsenal, it looks a little bit different now. So what is the message to us? And then a few guiding statements that we talked about last week, that the message of the text must be the message of our sermon, or the message of the text must be the message that you walk away with after you have spent some time in God's Word, right? We can't walk away and say, well, it said this, but I really wish it would have said this. A pastor can't get up in front of you and say, here's God's Word, but... It has to be the message of the text is the message of the sermon or the study, and the message of the text must be the message of our lives. So, with that in mind, let's go to Micah chapter 1, uh, and let's read the first seven verses uh, of this prophetic book, this minor prophet, minor not because of importance, but because of its length. And let's read the opening verses of this prophet again. Micah chapter 1 and verse 1. The title of today's message is, How Can a Good God Be an Angry God? The word of the Lord came to Micah the Morishite. And what he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Listen, all you peoples. Pay attention, earth and everyone in it. 
the Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire, and I will destroy all her idols. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used again for a prostitute. We looked last week at the settings of this of, of this uh, writing, of, of when Micah ministered. And we, we saw that, that last week that how division after division had led Israel to be where it is right now. We talked briefly about how there was King Saul, King David, King Solomon, a united kingdom, but then Rehoboam appeared, and he decided to take bad counsel and to raise the taxes even higher, and it split the kingdom. And for the last couple of centuries now, in this time, the division has just led to more and more and more destruction on a personal level for the people of God, on family levels for the people of God, and on a national level for the people of God. During Micah's ministry, that, that northern kingdom, those ten tribes that, that went with Jeroboam, they would be carted off into captivity by the Assyrians. Shortly after, less than a century after Micah's ministry, right, the, the, the southern kingdom would be taken off by the Babylonians. The, the northern kingdom never returned again, annihilated from the face of the earth. The, sub, the, the southern kingdom would come back and that remnant that we read about all throughout Old and New Testament scriptures. And here we see that because of, a, because of division again and again and again, that division leads to destruction. The most glaring consequences of, of sin is that it creates division between God and humans. And the sin of idolatry, which Micah talks about a lot, is one of peculiar nuances. But in all of those nuances, it's nuances, it causes division. It can take, idolatry can take the form of outright rebellion against God, where we turn our back on God and focus only on what's ahead, but it could be seen as this balance where we want a little bit of God, but we want a little bit of other stuff too. And we'll see this again and again in Micah, that that is the idolatry that Judah, that Israel was dealing with. But, we're, and we're going to talk about this idea of balance in coming weeks because we sometimes use, hey, I just want, I need to balance. I need to balance work and family. I need to balance my schedule for the benefit. And sometimes, as we'll see later in Micah, that that idea of balance we elevate to the point of it being an idol. And, but we'll get to that in a few weeks. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into idolatry, the idolatry of Israel and Judah, so that we can get real and honest about our own idolatry.
Now, it's interesting, and we said this last week, that that the the three kings give us some context, and you can go back and you can see what's happening in history based on the the kings and the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. It gives us some context. But something maybe even more significant is the fact that none of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel are mentioned at all. They had slipped so far into idolatry that that, that God is already having, preparing Assyria to come and to cart them off. It says here that, that he's talking to both Samaria and Jerusalem. He is talking to both. Israel, right, Samaria area is going to be carted off soon. So here we have Judah, who better pay attention or the same fate is going to befall them. There are three points that I want us to take away from this first chapter. We're only going to talk about one of them today, and we'll cover the next two next week. And the first thing that we're going to to look at is how Micah describes the judgment for idolatry. Again, this is prophecy and this is poetry, uh, so this, is, this can be hard stuff for us to understand. But if we're going to comprehend Micah's message to them and to us, we need to first think carefully about their idolatry. And here's what makes this book challenging. How many of you, or when is the last time somebody has come up to you and said, what do you want first, the good news or the bad news? Hey, how many of you choose the good news first? How many choose the bad news first? Why, why? Why do the majority of us want the bad news? Because we immediately want that followed up with the good news. God, if you're going to chastise me, give me some good, something good next. Your boss, if you've got to tell me something I'm doing poorly, would you please follow that up with something I'm good at and something you appreciate? We like bad news followed by good news. Sour taste, sweet taste. We like that. Unfortunately, that's not the way Micah is written. We have to wait a long time, really, before anything good comes. So we get bad news, or Israel gets bad news, bad news, bad news. And then finally, if we hold on, the good news comes. But I'll tell you this, it's not coming today. It's not coming next week in our study. But if we're patient, we see where hope and salvation comes from. We don't like this. We, 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 we don't like this. We, we, we like bad news tempered with good news, but unfortunately, that's not how Micah is. In this, this week and next, we see some tough love because sometimes deliverance only comes through judgment. Sometimes restoration only comes after rebuke. Sometimes resurrection only comes after suffering. And that's why it's hard for us to, to receive this type of message. Last week and this week in the reading, we saw that God is angry. And he's, as we see in the first few verses, he's coming out of his holy temple. Now, that could mean two things. That could mean that he's coming out of his earthly temple where he was to meet with the Israelites, with his people, And it's okay if we interpret it that way, but I think, I believe that it's talking about he is coming. He is leaving heaven to come 
and to, to bring judgment. And how is he going to do that? He is coming to tread upon the high places of the earth. Now, he's not talking about the mountains. He's not talking about the highest point in a city or a country or a continent. High places were pagan sanctuaries for idolatrous worship. It wasn't just the highest point in in Wood County or Washington County. It was a pagan sanctuary for worship to a fake God. And God warns that all of the people's carved images uh, will be smashed. They'll be beaten to pieces. That all of her wages will be burned in fire and that all of her idols would be destroyed. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used for a prostitute again. This idea of high places should scream at us because it's key to understanding what's going on in Israel and Judah. You see, the people of God were told by God who to worship, how to worship, and where to worship. They were to worship God and him alone. Go to the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shouldn't have any images that, that, that steal your worship away. They were told who to worship. They were told where to worship. They, they were to go to Jerusalem, where the temple was. They were to make this voyage there to worship in Jerusalem and in the temple where, the, the, where God came and was with his people. Now, later in the New Testament, Jesus has a conversation with a person, and it says, hey, there's a day coming where it's not going to matter where you worship. It's going to matter if you worship on Mount Gerizim or where you worship in Jerusalem or wherever. What's going to matter is that you worship in spirit and truth. But in the Old Testament, God had some very strict rules on who and where and how to worship. So here, these high places evolved because somebody had the good idea, you know what, we spend a whole lot of extra time packing up the animals, packing up the family, and making that week-long journey to Jerusalem to to worship. We could save a whole lot of time, and we could have more time to worship if we just built something here on our property or in our town. But what happened was then, because they didn't have that journey and that time to focus on who they were going to worship, where they were supposed to worship, that they started adding to their worship this collection of local deities. Hmm, the Smiths next door, their garden looked really good, and they have this image um, of, of, of a sun hanging in their window, and they worship this, this sun god. Maybe we should worship him as well. So we'll just add a little bit of that to our high places uh, decor. And over time, not only did they change where they were worshiping, they changed who they were worshiping. If people choose to worship God in a way that is different from the way, from the one that he sets out, very soon they will choose to worship a God different than the one God who is real. And that's what has happened to Israel, to Judah. And that is the foundation for idolatry. As simple as we can put, can put it, idolatry is choosing one's will over God's, choosing what is what I want over what God desires, 
choosing what is easier for me over than the statutes or the, the rules that God has given to me. It's giving ultimate allegiance that's due only to God uh, to any other object of affection. It could be wealth, influence, romance, power, control, approval. It could be family or comfort or preference or tradition or understanding or sex or acceptance and so on and so on and so on. It could be anything that we give a higher place than it should, a higher place than we give to God. And notice again in verse 7 that the promises for her wages will be burned by fire because their idolatry was centered on wealth. And not only that, a little bit further, he uses that imagery of a prostitute because their idolatry was on wealth and on sex. You can go all through back history books and see over and over and over how pagan religions centered around those two things, money and sex, and a combination of those things. And God is saying here that it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be burnt by fire. And God's judgment is coming to destroy every one of these idols. And we're going to look at that next week in detail. If you haven't read the rest of of Micah chapter 1, I encourage you to do that. And I encourage you to either have a study Bible open on your desk, uh, on your lap, or go to someplace like Bible Gateway or Bible Hub and pay attention to the word plays, to the the puns that are involved in there. Because what he does is is he systematically takes anything where uh, Israel or Judah had placed their identity, and he says it's going to be destroyed. your, Your identity is in your power, you're going to become weak. It's in your wealth, you're going to become poor. It's in who you think you are, I'm going to destroy that reputation. We're going to look at that more next week. And when we look at this, we ask something like, when we read this, we almost naturally ask, is God's judgment too harsh? I mean, don't, don't miss the scale of this judgment. You have mountains melting. You have uh, valleys splitting. This is serious stuff, and it seems harsh, and it is. But Christians, believers, tend to think about judgment as something related to the judgment of the world. God's going to judge the world for its sins, we don't so much like to think that God's judgment is coming on us as well. But if we look at Micah, if you go over and you look at Jesus' words or Paul's words or James' words, judgment, the majority of the time, church, is focused on those professing faith in Jesus Christ. Focusing or professing a faith in God. And, but just because we've been blessed to born into a godly family and we do all the right ritual things, we can be lost in idol worship where we have no relationship with God at all. And his judgment is coming to the world, yes, but specifically here in this text and in the New Testament, most of the time it's focused on the people of God. We, we have a difficult time thinking about this. We find God's judgment difficult. We like to think about God's mercy and forgiveness, His grace and His love, but not so much His judgment and His wrath and His anger. But the Bible clearly teaches 
that the same God who loves and gives grace and who forgives is the God of anger and wrath and judgment against idolatry and adulterers. So, it poses us to ask the question that's been on the screen behind me for the entire service. How can a good God be an angry God? If we're not thinking it, I'll bet you a paycheck that somebody in your circle of family or friends is asking that question right now. How can a God that you call good be this angry? So we need to understand this so that we can understand it for ourselves, yes, but maybe more importantly so that we can, we can explain it and we can help others understand it. How can I reconcile the anger of God with the love of God? How can I reconcile judgment with justification? How can I recognize God's fury against his own people with his amazing and immense grace? How is this possible? I want to recommend somebody to you. Her name is Becky Pipert, P-I-P-P-E-R-T. And she has this fantastic book called Hope Has Its Reasons. And Miss Pipert reminds us, uh, she points out that all loving persons are sometimes filled with anger, not despite of their love, but because of their love. All loving persons are sometimes filled with anger, not despite their love, but because of it. And, but, but we have a problem with that because we tend to be influenced by our own responses to situations. Uh, we, we look at our anger and how, it's how our irritability quickly becomes anger. We look at how our pettiness sometimes becomes anger and how, how we have this unrighteous anger when we fly off the handle. And we think because we act that way that that's how God acts as well in this unrighteous anger. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible responds that there, he teaches that God, the Bible teaches that God responds with a righteous anger. Piper has this quote, and it's a question, and, and it says, think about, think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance? And that phrase, benign tolerance, has, has captivated me over the last couple of weeks. Do we respond with a benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. We are dead against whatever is destroying the one we love. Think about this for a second, church. Suppose you have a loved one who, who, is, who is addicted to drugs, and maybe you need to fill in something else other than drugs into that. And you can see that this addiction is leading this person that you care deeply about down the path of destruction. Do you go to them with this benign tolerance and say, you know what? Have you thought about what you're doing? Have you thought maybe you need to go a different direction with this? It's, it's, it's probably not a good idea. Your life is already complex uh, enough. It, it's probably not a good idea for you to be doing this. Here's maybe something else that you should try. And when they say, oh, don't worry about it, said, uh, I, I've got it all under control. This isn't, this isn't an addiction. It's just recreational. Is it? I, I, I'm perfectly fine. Trust me. 
And you know that that was nothing but self-denial in what they were trapped in. Do you just sit back with your arms crossed in that benign tolerance again and like, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. I just wanted what was best for you, but if you've got it all under control, you just keep doing what you're doing. You be you. No, we don't do that. No, we, 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 say, we say something more like, do you know what you're doing to yourself? You, you're becoming less and less of who you are because of this path that you are on. And though that might sound harsh and we might try to pose it as lovingly as we can, no, we stand toe-to-toe with that evil that is dragging our loved one down. We don't just fold our arms and say, eh, whatever, it's not that big of a deal. No, we get upset and we don't get angry because we hate that person. We're angry because we cared, because we loved. We could have walked away, but love detests what destroys those we love. Love destroys that which destroys those we love. Real love stands against deception and lie and sins that destroy And love also stands against somebody who wants to hurt our kiddos. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. You would do anything to protect your children. And if somebody comes after your children, you become angry because you love those who are being attacked, those who are put in harm's way. God will judge his people because God stands opposed to things that destroy his people. Why? Because anger is not the opposite of love. This should have been on the screen. Anger is not the opposite of love. Anger flows out of love. Hatred, indifference, those are the opposite of love. Anger is not. Anger, righteous anger towards something that destroys is love. It is tough love, and God is using that type of love to get Israel's attention in Micah. And God has used that type of love to get his people's attention all throughout time. God will judge his people now to remove idols and return them to himself so so that they will not be destroyed by their idols at his final judgment. And when we see God's love this way, when God judges his own people because of their idolatry and what that idolatry will ultimately do to them, then we can see God's angry love for what it is. Deep, deep love. God will stop at nothing to save his children from things that will harm them. But we got to remember that God is playing the long game. He's not in it just for what's best for us tomorrow, what makes us feel the happiest tomorrow. God is in it for eternity, and he will do whatever he can to redirect his children back to him, even if it hurts them, because he's much more concerned about where you spend eternity than how you feel on the weekend. We must remember that God plays an eternity-long game and that we must remember that outright rebellion and idolatry with more of a subtle twist to it are equally condemning. Um, 
because we, both of them, create division that leads to destruction. Past, one of my favorite pastors and writers is Timothy Keller. And he, he has this quote, the greatest danger, because it is such a subtle temptation which enables us to continue as church members and feel that nothing is wrong, is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with idols in our heart. Think about that for a second. The greatest danger is not that we turn our back completely on God and become non-believers in God. It's not that we become atheists, atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with the idols in our heart. That is the type of idolatry that God's people were engaged in in Micah. They have not actively and definitively rejected God totally. They have deliberately and consciously added to their worship of God other objects of worship. It was a slow fade because they slowly started to walk away from God's statutes on how they should worship. This is idolatry. And in Micah chapter 1, verse 7, he uses the word prostitution. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Spiritually, this is a sort of idolatry that's idolatrous before God. This is people who says, God, we want to enjoy all the benefits of knowing you. We, 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 want, we love being loved by you, and we love you too. But we also want to be free to worship other things because they make us happy. And when we see a statement like that for what it is, the division of our focus and our worship, we begin to see why God abhors idolatry and why he is so firm on judgment is coming. We begin to grasp why God is so angry over it. Just like my young basketball player could not learn to shoot a free throw properly until all those bad habits were removed, we cannot experience rescue until there is first a removal of the objects of our idolatry. That's what God is promising in Micah chapter 1. And for the people in Micah's day, this judgment was going to be severe. Let's go back to those five questions that we had at the beginning of, of the message together. Why, why do we need to study something like Micah 1, 1 through 7? Because division leads to destruction. It's a message that we will get over and over and over in this minor prophet. The smallest amount of division is going to lead to disastrous destruction. What was the problem for them? They had wandered away from God's intended plan for them to worship. The who, the where, the why, the how, they had gradually moved away from that. And the message for them is unless you repent, judgment, cosmic judgment, mountain-melting judgment is coming to you. What's the problem for us? Well, let's revisit that Keller quote one more time. The greatest danger is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with the idols in our hearts. And church... 
this is where Scripture steps on our toes. Think about how guilty we are, you are, I am, of this, asking God to coexist. God, I really love you, but I might need this money, so you're okay with me not giving it, not tithing it this week, right? God, I really love you, but I'm going to let the world tell me who I am. God, I I really love you, but I'm going to shack up with my boyfriend, with my girlfriend before we are married. God, I really love you, but this alcohol, this drug, (laughs) it's going to feel so good. God, I really love you and you made me, but I'm going to listen to what the world has to say about my sexual identity. God, I really love you, but an hour on Sunday morning is just about all that I can manage to give you right now. God, I, I, I really love you, but I'm going to ignore what you said about how I should treat my spouse. I, I really love you, God, but, but I'm going to just sort of try my own thing at this kid-raising adventure that we find ourselves on. God, God I, I really love you, but, but I'm going to play this balance game. I'm going to give you 50%, and I'm going to take 50%. Here's an hour for you. Here's an hour for me, and we're going to play this. God, I really love you, but God, you are great, but God, thank you for saving me, but... Anytime, church, our actions, our words, even our thoughts add anything to the sentence, God, I love you, we have allowed an idol to coexist in our lives and our worship of our God. According to Micah, this is spiritual adultery. We are guilty of idolatry. So what is the message for us? The message is no different for us than it was for Judah, for Israel, thousands of years ago. Judgment is coming. Well, you can take the Old Testament, you can flip over to the New Testament, and you can see this over and over and over, that judgment is coming for those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ. Let's just pick a couple as we wrap up our time together. Let's just pick a couple that, are, that fit closely with our study of Micah. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, shared these words. For, the, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in their cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped worshiped and served something created Instead of the creator, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator 
who is praised forever. Amen. Harsh words coming from the Apostle Paul. Paul was right then, and he sure seems to be right now. The only difference for us is we don't bow down to images resembling mortal man, birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Adam Mabry, in a, in a cool book that I've been listening to, the, the, the Art of Rest, he shares this. The only difference is that we don't stop to admire glittering statues of birds and animals. We stare at mirrors. We lift our hands to honor pagan deities as we raise our arms to take the perfect selfies. We have forgotten the creator and replaced him with the creature. We have made the meaning of life to find ourselves rather than to find God. Paul hits the nail on the head again in another letter that he wrote in Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 3, he, he wrote this. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our, but our citizenship is in heaven. Their end is destruction, their God is their bellies, judgment is coming. But for the believer, we get the good news right after that. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that wasn't good enough, then the next verse, verse 21, promises that He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to him. Church, that last phrase, that's a curious phrase. He will be, a, who, that enables him to subject everything to himself. It goes back to a chapter to, to 2.10 that says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Does this mean that what we do on a Sunday morning is futile? Does this mean that when judgment comes that everybody, regardless of whether they've lived a life of obedience or disobedience, whether they've shunned Jesus or surrendered to him as their Savior, does that mean that everybody gets a free pass and is, is ushered into heaven? No. He is talking here that one day we are going to die and face final judgment. Whether we lived in obedience or in sin and adultery, we are all going to drop to our knees and acknowledge that Jesus is God in the flesh. Every single person who has ever lived, wherever we end up, we are going to know Jesus is our Lord. Now, the choice is yours. You can now surrender to that Savior. You can now figuratively or literally fall to your knees and surrender to him and say, you are Lord. I have messed up my life. I need you to be my Savior. And on that day, when you bend your knee, you're going to be helped up and you're going to walk into eternity in the presence of God. If you decide that Jesus isn't for you, if you decide that, hey, I'm a pretty good king of my own life, I'm just going to stick with this plan, 
and they work for, work for you for a while. But one day, on that same judgment day, you too are going to fall to your knee, and you are then going to realize that Jesus is king of the universe. But on that day for you, that forced kneeling is going to be too late. Because instead of being helped to your feet and ushered into uh, eternity in the presence of God, you will be ushered into the, an eternity void of God, in the, uh, away from the presence of all that is holy and all that is light. This morning, church, is God our sole purpose? Or are we allowed all these other idols to come in and co-opt our worship that should be designated only to God alone? I have two questions for you to deal with this week, to, to think through this week. I encourage you to look at the one sheet this week, to wrestle through these a little bit more, to understand more about Israel's idolatry so that we can understand more about our idolatry. But today, what are the idols that are now coexisting with God in your life? If you don't think you have any, just hit pause a second, back up and think, have I ever said anything have I ever thought anything like, I love you, God, but? The second question is, where are the high places that you run to for worship? Where are the places that you go for refuge? Where are the places that you go for fulfillment? Where are the places to get your identity and your worth and your value? If you are running to a man-made high place, Rather to the very presence of your Savior, you are worshiping a false idol. Father God, thank you for allowing us to be here today. God, please forgive us. Forgive us collectively and individually for the sin of allowing other idols to come in and to, to take residence in our heart in a place that should have been only reserved for you. And God, re please forgive us for our, our, for our idolatry. And God, this morning you know our hearts. You, need how, you know how we need to respond, whether that is a surrender to you for the first time, to call on you as our Savior, or whether that's a prayer of forgiveness, asking you to, to forgive our wayward ways, our, our idolatry. God, however we need to respond today, please, spur us to do that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We think that idolatry